You're listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. My name is Chris Kiefer, and today on the podcast, I have an inspirational conversation with Aaron Bayer from Sandy, Oregon. In this episode, we talk about overcoming hardships, the importance of role models and mentors in our lives, and Aaron also shares the three things that he thinks you should do with everyone you meet. Probably the most remarkable thing about Aaron is where his story began. Aaron grew up in the Bay Area, was born into poverty, and his early years were surrounded by drug addiction, homelessness, and loss. And somehow he has managed to get to where he is today, which is not only in education, but he is the superintendent of the Oregon Trail School District in Sandy, Oregon. Aaron, I'm very excited for our conversation today, and I will just let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Yeah, outstanding. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, you know, tracking, I suppose, how I got to where I am today goes, goes back for me to uh, my childhood, a very non-traditional upbringing in that my mom and my stepdad were both lounge singers and would spend Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights in, in lounges and bars, really trying to perfect their craft. And so my brother, uh, my stepbrother and I were, you know, were um, raised at, at bar stools, uh, community peanut jars, and making our, navigating our way through an adult world at a very young age you know, from 9, 10, 11 p.m. until 2 or 3 in the morning. And that was a rough career choice on their part. And we were very transient. We went to five, changed schools five or six times in elementary school. I know that some people changed far more than that. Um, we, we changed just because we didn't have the ability to stay in the fixed housing for for much of our our childhood there. And we were from moved from Santa Clara to San Jose and and back a number of times. We uh, ate at the mission. That really did help uh, help shape us. We were homeless and lived in a garage. Uh, we spent time in our van and um, we were ev- evicted on a number of occasions. And I I recall it was, it was interesting when I was probably eleven or so, twelve. And our you know power had been shut off, and we didn't have access to hot water and the like. And then our, our power come, utilities come back on, and I remember receiving a, a a bill in the mail and with my name on it, you know. And that was kind of that was kind of when I, I realized what was happening there. And my mom would put bills in my name or my brother's name when she could no longer um, get the utility to extend her uh, the credits to have our power turned on or or water etc you know and the, the cast of characters that we grew up with I remember them being uh, great people from my perspective uh, through a child's lens you know my my aunt was with us from time to time and she was a heroin addict and so when I was a kid you know we grew up you're, you're five six seven years old and and you already the word the term tracks is already part of your vocabulary, and you understand what it is to have an intravenous drug issue, even though um, you don't know what intravenous drug use really is. You do understand, wholly understand the concept of of doing and using 
I suppose the pinnacle moment for me, and I guess I'm using that term very loosely, but was my my stepbrother died at 16 and was uh, was shot, and so and he was um, he and I were the same age, and so we just from a young age we did we did all, all I mean we did life together, and then then there was a time when he uh, it shows chose some different uh, activity. That, that led him into some, you know, uh, a cohort of people that just really, uh, you know, found him in a position in life that was, was very, very unfortunate. And so that was um, a real turning point for me when I was 16 and you, you look at this, the world that you live in and, and um, how that world is vastly different than the greater society that exists outside of outside of you and your family. First of all, I think it's important for people to realize that the the man that is speaking right now is currently a superintendent of a school district in Oregon, and um, and just has had an incredible journey. And I think it's like when I um, I, I remember the first time I heard your story, Aaron, that I was thinking about. Um, just kind of like the constant, like, wait a minute, who is this? Like, who, where, what is he doing now? How did this happen? How did you get here? And so as a, as a kid, did you like, how, how long or at what point in your life did you start to like have some semblance of, you know, stability or was it kind of, did you even, I guess maybe you didn't even know the difference or is there a, a time cause you were just raised in that but was there, do you remember a particular grade or age where suddenly you guys had a house and you had a bedroom with a bed um, and your parents were more like on a normal schedule or was this kind of, how, how long did this type of lifestyle last for you? Yeah, that was our schedule. And, and, and quite frankly, you know, until I was probably 21, 22, my stepdad and mom separated. And when I was probably 21, 22, my younger brother Zach and I shared a a room, air quotes, in a little town called Idlewild Park, and this was really the water heater room. It was really enough for my brother and I to get a, a bunk bed in, and we slept in that room. And, and as you're getting out of the bunk bed, it's probably a, you probably have a foot and a half, two feet between you and the bunk bed, all the way around with that water heater sitting in the back there of that storage area and so we shared you know all the way up until that point and that's the last time i recall the boy scouts bringing us a, a box of food for thanksgiving and then for me it was off to oregon state university and and, and, and to try to get a degree and then my grandmother moved from california to oregon and then at that point in time that was really when we we had our like we were stable stable we felt like at least for me i, I can't you know, speak to my brother's experience but felt like that was it we were stable bills would get paid we'd have you know we'd have a, a constant roof over our house and you know and when you're a kid and that's that's your that's your that's the context in which you're gaining this lived experience there you don't know that, that really that there's a, a heck of a lot of a difference out there. You make some assumptions that a lot of folks 
have a, a similar experience to you, um, you kind of in the back of your head, you're like, all right, there's, there's got to be different. There are those times, right? Because you're, you're in school still and you're reading stories about people and you've, you know, you're reading some, some early literature and, and you hear stories about folks and you, your teachers are telling you, you can be anything you want to be. And, you know, like we, like we tell folks, you know, you could be, if you want to be the president, you can be. And so you know that there's an existence of, of something different, but you don't really know it to be better. You don't really know it to, to be an improvement upon that which you are currently living in, and nor are you pursuing it because you understand the rules of that life. You understand how to be successful. You create a schema through which you can navigate the world and aren't, aren't, aren't afraid of it. Um, and then when I realized, you know, I had permanency probably on 21, but I realized that the world well, there was a stark contrast was when I moved from elementary school experience to middle school and in San Jose Unified at the time, they had a process they called desegregation and they sent kids based on their socioeconomic status, their ethnicity, where they lived around San Jose. They sent them to different elementary schools so they bust us all around. And it just so happened that my brothers and I got bust to... Castellero Middle School, which was a very affluent school from our perspective at the very least at that time. And I wasn't in that school very long before, you know, I was getting picked on. I looked, I looked Chris, just like most of the other white kids that, that went to school. They're like on the outside. I looked like them, you know, my skin color, etc. But then the way I dressed, the way I talked, the tone, the, the pace, the tenor, you know, my, my vernacular was not their vernacular. And so um, I got picked on regularly. And, and, you know, the term, the common term now is bullying, right? So, so I was bullied to say the least um, most days for the first few weeks that I was in this school. And I tried to do everything right. I tried to tell teachers. I tried to, I tried to tell the principal. I was using adults like I, I thought I was supposed to, but I still couldn't manage in that, in that context. And so I, um, I ended up telling the teacher, I said, she said something to me on her about, you know, just be respectful, you know, and you just have to just be safe and use your words and, and be responsible. Well, to me, respect was something different. We had a different definition than, than she did, clearly, because respect meant getting mine. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get respect. And I knew one way to do that. And so, and responsible was being responsible to myself, not a, not a community of folks necessarily that weren't like me. And so uh, the very next time these two picked on me, got in a fight, uh, beat, beat a couple kids up, and I got kicked out of school there in, in Castellero in sixth grade. And so that was my first real experience outside of um, the community that I was being raised in. And that experience was not a positive by any stretch of the imagination when you find yourself then being um, getting in fights, being, being bullied, being harassed regularly. And then in turn, you see this um, life, this society that's very perpendicular to your own, kicking you out and rejecting you. So at what point in this process did you, like you mentioned that people say, you know, you can be anything you want to be. If you want to be king, you can do that. At what like, did you have dreams of, you know, being a fireman or, you know, 
the kind of the the childhood um, aspirations and then even in like middle school or high school, was there any point in your life that, I mean, up until obviously you were getting a degree in college, but how early on did you decide or feel like you wanted to go into education and be a teacher? So it was roughly after I, I got in that, that fight. It was my seventh grade year, however. Um, so my mother, Kelly, I recall we were at home for a long time and, and I was doing nothing. Literally, I was just at home. I was I was running around, you know, the streets and, and um, I was in and out. And, and I, th I think my mom just finally got tired of, of me being at home. And so that was apparently that was my only option was to try to try to get back to that middle school. And I remember my mom going to the, the office there and had a long conversation with the principal after a number of, you know, a number of weeks. And at one point in the meeting, my mother gets uh, frustrated. She uses... <laughs> some expletives and and sends me out of the office and I'm out in the waiting area and maybe 30 minutes or so go go by and my mom comes back and she says okay we're gonna you know we're gonna get back to school and um, Mrs. Rodriguez is gonna get you a schedule and that was my principal's name and she sure enough Miss Rodriguez got me a schedule went back to school finished out um, that year and the very next year I had a teacher by the name of Mr. Smith, that was a social studies teacher. And he um, saw, I suppose, something in me that I didn't see in myself that that I don't know that anybody did, but we were getting ready to do a reenactment in, in our class of the Civil War. And of all the characters, he, he wanted me to play Abraham Lincoln. And so I remember when, when he asked me and I, and I, and I was like, I don't, I don't think you know who I am, you know, and, and in sixth grade, I was that kid and everybody knew it, that I was the kid that beat kids up. And, and so I got that reputation and it was good that I got the reputation because nobody had picked on me. It wasn't so good in that socially, I didn't, I didn't really fit in anywhere. I didn't have a whole lot of friends. And so, so he wanted to make me Abraham Lincoln. And the thing that he said to me that, that still rings very interesting to me, how he, he came to this, I really will never know, but he said, you know, I don't know if you, if you really learn like other kids, but I've, I've heard you talk to these kids in these groups, and though you don't feel like you're connecting, he says, you just have a, real, a way with words, and, and you just seem very comfortable speaking, and so I just figured if there's a role for you, it's, it's Abraham Lincoln, and I think you could really do something with this, right? And so I went, and I memorized the Emancipation Proclamation and all these things, and and he was just that guy that was just an advocate for me that entire year. And so I, I, at that moment, I said, wow, this is, this is cool that there, there are really people like this. Like this could, this could be a job, you know, this could be something I could, I could potentially do. And then it went away and I went to, ended up graduating eighth grade and, and got into football and thought, man, this football thing, this is the real deal, you know, and, um, and, and ended up pursuing football in high school and, and playing, playing a little bit. And then, you know, when my stepbrother died that the January, when we were, we were 16 there, he was getting ready to go to his 17th birthday in February. Um, things really came together for me, unfortunately, from, from kind of an adult perspective where I had, this Mr. Smith who had really done what I thought was just a solid for me. And other adults 
or other adults that really did, I think, had cared about me over, over time, but they didn't have the ability in that moment to care for me the way he did in that school setting and, and really shed some light on what it is he thought I could bring to this class. But for me, that class was, was a different world than the life that I had been, been living in, in the context of my neighborhoods. And so I found some success in a world that was not mine through that experience. And, and little by little, and little did I know in that, that it was actually growing me. And so in high school, I found that I had similar life experiences that just tended to build on each other. And then my brother passed away and, and, and we had the funeral and we came, you know, we came back to school. And I remember kind of the, that moment I had a, I had a class mate, well, he was a year older than me at the time. He came up to me with some of his friends and wanted to share his sympathies. And, and I rejected his sympathies on, on the grounds that prior to that moment, he hadn't once shared a single thought of of care or friendship or fun or sadness. We had not had a single lived experience together that was um, galvanizing, that was positive or negative, that was a matter of, hey man, you know, let me give you a hug and and and, and I'll give you a hug in return. I mean, there was none, there was none of that. And, and this was a moment where simply out of sympathy, I believe this this fella and his friends wanted to come up and and, and give me their apologies, which I was not, I was not ready to accept because I, I believed that it was, it was simply an exercise for them in, in fulfilling some obligation that they felt in the moment because it was a really sad event for, for the entire school and they were going to show me that, that they were good people and, and I wasn't willing to accept that. And I, I had this dialogue with them and I said that they could take their sympathies uh, to keep them to themselves and and get out of my face, and and um, so it was really shocking to them. It happened at lunch. It was in front of everybody, and I was not as as calm as I am today, and pretty verbose, and 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 it was lengthy. Um, and they turned the other they turned the other way. They left, and I remember this is going to sound ironic, but my principal at the time, his name was Mr. Smith, and and he hears me having this conversation with these guys, and he came up to me and. And and just had a had a dialogue with me about you know handling myself and and, and comp- keep just trying to maintain composure in situations like this and how difficult it is to do so and that again reinforced this idea that that being a public educator um, or that being in education had value because in my you know when I was growing up there were two things that really didn't have a whole heck of a lot of value quite frankly those were. Um, police officers and educators, you know, right? And, and so both, um, strangely enough, inf- are rule enforcers. They're the ones that, that keep you down. They're those folks that try to right, keep you on the straight and narrow that, that um, we kind of we rejected, you know? And so in that moment, Mr. Smith had that conversation with me. And then later, um, I had uh, Mr. Miller, who was a driver's ed teacher, had a conversation with me and said to me that I had... I had uh, I better realize that the world already has me pegged as a statistic that you come from a divorced family and there's alcoholism and there's drug abuse um, and you're transient and you, you know, you've, you've lived this life and you're the free and reduced lunch kid and you, you're eating at missions um, and the world knows exactly where you're headed. The world knows exactly what it is you're going to become. 
And so you can just kind of fall into the gravity that is that, is that statistic and, and they have you pegged and you go out and you do, you do likewise and, and you find yourself involved in drugs and, and alcohol um, abuse and, and raising the next generation of kids that are going to live you know, um, in, in, in poverty, if you will, and, and, and eat admissions and, and run the streets. And I don't think he was saying that to me to, to condemn um, uh, an existence or a lifestyle. I think he was trying to say it to me to motivate me. And so I remember having that conversation go, well, I, I could be a statistic, but, but then isn't everybody. So if you do just the opposite on some, at some point you become a statistic. It's just, you've, you know, you've, 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 you've fought the, the good fight and you've, you've kept your eye on a different prize and you're a statistic, but now you're an outlier and, and you haven't fallen to the gravity of, of this, this, um, societal standard that has normed you to be nothing more than, um, a broken kid from a broken home with broken dreams right without the skills to put them all back together so did you the there's a couple people that you've mentioned now mr miller being one of them obviously can you go um basically back through your life and pick out it sounds like um there were a few key people that were in instrumental in basically giving you the the words of encouragement and or Almost like the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, saying, calling you out in a good way at the right time to hold you to a higher standard or plant a seed. Um, what other, or were there any other people that you feel had a tremendous impact on you um, besides um, Mr. Miller and the two Mr. Smiths? Yes, you know, this is going to be sound really maybe random, but when I was on or about second grade or so, um, maybe eight, nine years old, and I was living on North 10th Street down in San Jose. There was a young a police officer in the San Jose Police Department that used to patrol that area. He would stop in when he was on his, on his shift and just see how we were doing, make sure he was checking in, you know, make sure we weren't literally running into the street, but just keeping ourselves contained. I'm not vandalizing, et cetera. And he would just have genuine conversations with us. And that was way back when I was at Grant Elementary School, you know, in, in, in second grade there. And that his name was Gary, uh, Gary Smith, if I haven't already said that. And so ironically then, um, a little bit later in life, he reconnects with my brother, my little brother, Zach, when he was in middle school. And then I'm in high school and Gary was our school resource officer or one of them. And so I remember my freshman year, I'm coming into to Gunderson High School and, and, and you know, meet this officer and he's looking at me and I'm you know, looking at him, he goes, hey, wait a minute, you, you remember a, a police officer on, down there, the mortuary there on 10th Street that used to come and stop by? And I said, yeah, I remember that guy, man, that guy was cool, you know? And, and he was the first, like in second grade, that's like, you know, you got one police officer that, that you're like, hey, this guy is cool. But then you're conflicted because you don't really value law enforcement at the time, you know, when, when, when the way I grew up. And, uh, and he goes, hey, that was me. And, I, and it was a mind-blowing, this mind-blowing um, time for me because to have somebody that recalled that moment, you know, we talk about 
you know, we, we, before you and I have talked about being present, and I can't imagine the number of people, I said Gary Smith, not Gary Smith, Gary Johnson, my apologies, it was Mr. Smith was my principal, Gary Johnson was a police officer, and the amount of people that Gary had to have come into contact with, especially seven years prior, that he would remember these kids from, from North 10th Street that were running around at the mortuary, to me was just a really, really awesome, awesome moment. And, and then he became a guy in my life that I later lived with uh, for a period of time. My brother lived with him for a period of time. He's the guy that right now I, I still, if there was one guy that influenced, had influence on me as a child, that I could just pick up a phone right now if I was in trouble and call and get great advice, if, if not a place to stay, if not, if not somebody to help me if I was in a financial crisis, uh, that's the guy. And it's such a small world that his brother is actually now the police chief in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Um, in the same county in which I work. So, so Don Johnson is Gary's brother. And when we were kids, my brother and I had spent the Thanksgiving with Gary and his family. And Don was at that Thanksgiving. And so when I, you know, when I think back about the folks that have influenced me or that maybe I've allowed to influence me, because when, when I was a kid, it wasn't, it wasn't, every individual that you come in contact with that you really trust to influence you. You know, you learn that, that wrong or right, you learn that people have a motivation. And oftentimes we, we were in survival mode. And, and when people are trying to survive themselves, they, they find use for you as far as you can take them. And if you can't take them any further, then, then, um, you know, you're, you're, your usefulness wears, wears off and they're going to move on. And he was a guy that, that never, that didn't really, really happen. You know, I, whatever reason, I just kind of trusted him as a, as a second grader. And I trust him again when I was in ninth grade and then, and all the way through. And, and he's a guy that, that I think, I don't even know if he knows this quite frankly, but, but that allowed me to, or, or, or gave me opportunity to trust and in doing so, um, I was really, he really gave me the space and, and time to um, evaluate who I was, you know. Um, and that's, that's a real, a real influencer. He's a guy that I don't think has ever met another human being that he said to himself, that person's insignificant, you know. Um, he really, he really did show, show us I think my brother would say the same, show us um, how to be a, a person that really wants to find purpose and help others find their purpose. So the speaking of these people that influence you, I think this ties into a topic that I'm very interested in slash obsessed with is just, well, I'm interested in the in leadership and entrepreneurship. Um, but I think what I'm really obsessed with is how uh, you develop that in people and how um, some people are more inclined to those positions or roles or um, basically taking risks or maybe the other way to say it would be um, assuming responsibility for things. Um, 
and basically choosing to, you know, write their own story as opposed to, like you said, that the driver's ed teacher told you, you know, you're just a statistic. Um, and there's so many people that are not able to, for one reason or another, get out of that. But what do you think, or why do you think some people are leaders and others are not? You know, you know, Chris, I, th I think some of it is, um, I think all of it is lived experience. And then I think some of it is opportunity. I think people um, on many fronts are, are broken. We have our own unique coping strategies that, that are developed over time that we grow comfortable with. And I don't, I don't know that people, quite frankly, um, are born to be or not to be. I just think that, that life comes at you in, in, in different forms, um, again, based on where you are at any given point in, in your life. And, and when I'm working with folks that are leaders, if you will, um, currently, I don't, I don't know that the motivation for them to become leaders would be, would be found in other folks in identical measure. I don't know that there's a single metric that you could use and say that if you can do these things, that when people do this, that then will translate into um, leadership and afford them opportunities um, that are separate and apart from folks that, that don't have that exact quality. And so when I'm when, you know, when I'm when I'm working with folks, and when when we're talking about leadership, um, I think think you have to allow your passion to run a bit um, a foul of of a, of a mainstream trajectory to to the top, if you will. I think I think that really is the critical piece, and where you find your passion. Coming, coming to odds with the you know, the environment in which you're working, then you get to question if if you're in the right environment, if you're if you're pursuing the right right opportunities, if if the people in in that environment um, appreciate what it is you wholly believe in, and so I think that that when when it comes to leading, we need to first ask ourselves what it is that we follow. And I think that we, we have to, from my perspective, if we're going to do this, we have to follow something. There has to be something that you go, can go to every single day and, and know that this is, this is your foundation, that this is what drives you, that this is what motivates you, that irrespective of the time or the tempo in which you're working, this thing that you follow provides you with that sense of comfort and allows for you to make decisions that are going to prove to move your generations. And, and when I read about leadership, when I, when I read about followers that have great leaders, I find that there's a gap in what it is those great leaders are following, you know, and 
when we come to a point, I think, when we can recognize that that leadership in in and of itself, I think, is 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 a just a construct. Um, we can, we can get down to the root of what I believe is behind that construct, and that is being a great follower of something, whatever that may be. Some folks find their their strength in in religions of, of, of many shapes and, and, and colors. Some folks find their strength in, in a single person. Maybe it was an, an inspiration from long ago, a grandmother, a grandfather, you know, a, a former leader uh, of their time. And they will go and base decisions on, on like philosophies. I've yet to find a leader that's successful that allows for their decisions, their philosophy, those things that move them to be, to be directed by the wind, right? And and I think in that there's there's a, a more powerful message that we pursue those things um, that that we ascribe to that we that we're following with veracity and and a passion, unlike anybody's ever seen. I think that inside all of us, there's a, the fire burning. And whatever that fire is, those lived experiences either create in us the desire to fan that flame and, and, and pursue that with, or just pursue that relentlessly. Um, we fail by the world's definition or we succeed. And some folks, I think, because of lived experience, because of maybe the brokenness, Maybe they, 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 don't, they don't possess the desire, not the ability, but maybe the desire to, to go out and, 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 and pursue those opportunities because those opportunities come with a different, different set of, of struggles. And I know there have been times for me when, when I look back at my life in the last 42 years and, and I, I feel as though I've... I've I've struggled more in the first 21 years of my life than than most have, um, you know, after after 84 years. And to me, sometimes I I, I run out of resiliency, and and I I wonder if if the struggle that comes with pursuit um, is is worth it. And that is not to be drab or or or, or draconian and. and but it's just to say that, and sometimes this thing that, that we call um, life, in particular from um, a leadership vantage point, is, is taxing. And, and I don't, you know, when people don't pursue those leadership opportunities, I find no fault in that um, whatsoever. And not because some people have to be followers, but because... I, I think I understand the, the, you know, the, the amount of energy that has to be committed to being in that space, that leadership space, and to, to, to having those platforms. And it is very, very, very taxing. It's not that it's not worthy of pursuit. It's just hmm. exceedingly taxing. And if, if you've had a life at all that, that found you struggling at a magnitude greater than the norm, and now you're in adulthood, and you say to yourself, "Man, 
I can either, I have two options, I suppose, to either allow those struggles that I had as a child to, to have been in vain, or I can allow those struggles to be, to be the, the engine, right, that, that propels me, that continues to compel me to move forward in pursuit of something different for the people that I encounter than I had when I encountered people during that trying time. Hmm. So it sounds, or the big thing I'm taking away from that, which is actually a really interesting perspective, but if I were to paraphrase what you said into my, my understanding, basically that the people that become leaders and not leaders just by title, but true leaders that people are following are ones that are, they basically are drawing on their own lived experiences, both good and bad, and that becomes kind of the fuel that, um, you know, allows them the, the energy that is required to, you know, inspire others and lead people, correct? From my perspective, indeed, you know, and, and I, I think you can look at, you can look at Fortune 500 leaders, I suppose, and you can look at folks that are innovative and entrepreneurial and have had startups and you, you know, you find people that are really pursuing their passion. I think that pursuit though is, is arrived at from two, two potentially distinctively different experiences. One, I've had great success in these areas. I've seen my father, my mother, my grandfather, my grandmother have awesome success in these areas. I've, I come from a family of risk takers because we've had the opportunity to take risks because we've grown up and had access and we've had, we've had resources and we know how this is done and that excites me. And I think the other is I've got nothing to lose. I, I believe I've seen the worst that life has to offer. I believe that I've lived in the shadows and the darkness of a society and watched from that, that perspective a world turn in a way that most don't get to see the world turn. And I know that I don't wanna go back there. And so I'm going to allow that to motivate me to do something different, to evoke in people a different sense of urgency that maybe didn't exist when I was a child. And I think they both can take us to the same place. Hmm. Yeah, that's very cool. I like that a lot. That's a, I think that's an interesting, um, it's kind of, I guess the, the thing that that makes me think of is that I feel like there's a lot of people um, that basically want to be leaders for the sake of being a leader for whatever, whether it's the, you know, prestige or the, the fame or whatever that comes through that. And they are trying to figure out what, like, how do I do it or whatever? And I would say from hearing talking to you is that basically you just have to evaluate your own life and reflect on, you know, what areas are you basically made to be a leader in? And, you know, I guess there, I, my thought is just, there's ample opportunity for leaders in a whole variety and facets of society. And everybody has been, um, gifted in both good and bad scenarios that they've been through to 
you know, use that in a positive way um, in some, you know, niche of society. Right. And sometimes I wonder if it isn't a false construct anyway, right? Because from my perspective, we attach the term leadership with the idea of success and success with the idea of, of making great monetary gains in life. But if, but if none of that was true, if leadership wasn't associated with some, some normative um, definition of success and, and that success wasn't based on, on the amount of money that you accrue over a lifetime. And if we reduce it down and, and simply said that, that you're a leader, if you're pursuing those things that burn in you, again, with the veracity and, and, a, and a passion that nobody has ever before seen that, that isn't, that is very atypical of, of people in this world. And maybe nobody's following you, but you're successful based on the definition of success that you've created for, for yourself. And that is that I'm, I'm not beholden to anyone. I've never once committed to somebody, something that I couldn't bring to fruition. I've only pursued those things that ring true in my life. And I've done so fearlessly. I've done so um, with courage because I'm doing so uh, in the face of, of failure, right? And I'm not pursuing greatness for the sake of being great, but, but I am pursuing that passion in me. And I'm going to live the life that I believe I'm supposed to live through, through that lens and through that experience and hope that one day the world will paint me as great. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't mm. know that, that the greatest leaders that we can, maybe they're, I don't know. Maybe my perspective is very skewed, but I don't know that some of the greatest leaders that we've had in the last uh, two generations, uh, the, night, the night before they had that, that moment in time that we all remember, I don't know that the night before they went to bed and said, tomorrow I'm going to be great. I don't know that that happened. I think, moreover, that, that, that these women, these men that have done committed great acts that we would say were amazing leaders didn't believe themselves to be. They were simply doing what it was they believed was, was, was right and just and true that they had a passion for. And see, we, we're the ones that then in turn said, wow, they are great. And it would be shocking. Absolutely. Yeah. It would be shocking to me uh, if, if ever we ran across that, that person historically and, and, and uh, that journal came out and, and it said, hey, uh, P.S., tomorrow I will be great. Because I don't think that's the way it happens. <laughs> I really don't. Right, right. And that's, not the, that's not even in the footnotes, right? They wrote their own story in real time. And we then wrote that addendum. <laughs> and in bold letters, we wrote the word, the, you know, the, the, the word great, G-R-E-A-T. They didn't. And so if we can change the construct, that, that may uh, indeed find some folks um, pursuing leadership, right, um, from a different perspective than, than yesterday we believe is true. What are some, like, and I don't know if the, what, if the word is values that you have, um, but do you have any, like, simple or actionable things that you feel it's good to do on a daily basis 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, I had a, um, a former student of mine committed suicide a while back and um, was, was an eighth grader and he kept a journal. And in his journal, uh, this student referenced me by name and said something to, to the effect that, you know, um, Mr. Bear always, always calls me by my name and always smiles at me. And um, the reason that was pretty profound to me was 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 not not because it was a, it was a prideful moment. You, you you can't you can't be proud of yourself in a moment in which you lose you lose a student. Um, and nonetheless, you know, a, a child at that. But what it did say to me is that despite everything this human was going through. The power that they believed that was in something as simple as a smile and using using their name just was just stunning to me. And I remember being in 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 that 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 church, and, and I was asked by a local pastor if I would if I would you know, speak, and um, I said something to the effect that um, you know. If we if we gave this young person the support in this moment now, um, um, if we gave them that that same support in life, we may not be in this moment. And I and I implored with them to um, smile at people, and to use people's names, and to know one thing about them, so that you could create for those people um, a genuine lived experience. Um, no matter how fleeting that moment was, it would be as genuine as is possible in that in that place and 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 time. And I think that if we can just do that, because we're going to make decisions um, in our lives, Chris, as leaders, as followers, as, as moms, dads, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, you name it, that that people aren't going to agree with and they're not going to like. And some of our, our positions are going to force us to make decisions that find other people, um, you know, to to have those lowlights of their careers, and and sometimes those jobs run run counter to um, other you know other folks finding success. But at the very least, if we can though create genuine a genuine moment in time with with folks, um, when at the first we meet them by by you know, at least smiling at them, knowing their name, and, and finding out one, one thing about them, um, I think we could change. I think we can change a lot of perspective out there. And I, you know, I, there's one thing I always ask myself. I suppose it's like, if if we could really change the world one conversation at a time, what would that look like? And and I just did did a presentation to so with some kids at a school that that's outside of my school district, and that was the question I led with, right? Um, what would it look like? What if we could change the world? Um, one question at a time. Now, the, the presupposition is that the world needs to be changed. I suppose when when you ask when you ask a question like that, and maybe it doesn't need to be. But from my perspective, we could we could use uh, people being genuine and sincere, smiling at one another, uh, using their name, um, and knowing one thing about them, and, and, and leveraging that often. And that, you know, that's, 
that's as, as simple as, as I think it gets. So the one, one question with all everything that you're talking about, and I have to know this from your perspective, how, how do you define success and what does, um, like looking forward at the next, you know, 60 years of your life, um, what does, um, what does that look like for you in your life? For me, I think that success is, is, is finding happiness um, wherever it is you find you choose to find it. I think that pursuing again, if you know if if you have an opportunity to pursue your passion and not to allow that to be eclipsed by anything that anyone else says or does or by having an artificial um, um, construct projected onto you by by the people in your world who have already defined and redefined and, and, and um, um, success and are trying to get you to attend to a very like definition, um, I think you will then find success by not attending to everybody else's definition of it. You know, I think that unfortunately we, we put this thing on people and we, we want them to, um, we want them to, to believe that unless and until they pursue as we have done, they won't find that success, and 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 I just, for me, uh, Chris, I've I've done it. Um, you know, I went, I had uh, a lived experience when I was a child that was wholly and utterly incongruent to to the experience that I'm my, my, I've been able to provide for my children. I operate in a world um, in which the majority of the people that I operate with had experiences um, not unlike those sixth graders who. Who I got in a fight with, and and wouldn't have understood me when I was a child. I've learned to code switch between the language of my childhood and and my young adulthood, and the, the language of academia and superintendencies and public education, the university system. Having this conversation with you, um, and on a per, very on a personal level, that to me I've I've already I've. I've done it, you know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm successful <laughs> as far as I'm concerned because I could have never imagined, as as a as a child, this life that I've been able to live, the opportunities it's given me, to to help provide for other people, the um, conversations that I've had along the way, and if ever there was a chance to change, uh, you know, the world one conversation at a time, well, I've been given it. And I've been given those opportunities. Um, and some can say that well, you've you've, you've taken it down, you've you've you become successful, you've you've done it, you've, you've you know you you beat the odds. I don't I don't think any of that's true. I think that that I for whatever reason um, had a lived experience that was incongruent with this adult world that I now live in. And it wasn't about beating the odds. It was it was it was really about carrying the torch, um, not just one, but but many um, for for my, my mom who, who to this day still struggles with poverty, for my stepbrother who. Who didn't get a chance to live to experience the experiences in the life that, that I've experienced, you know, for for my aunt who is now healthy but was a was a drug addict, and then for you know um, the friends, the many friends that I had that were in and out of you know um, jail and then prison, and uh, stepbrother who was still in prison, and, and the other kids like myself that may have been taken, you know, um, way too early, and I, I've been given a chance, Chris, to carry the torch for all of those people that that had a life not unlike mine, and some of them had lived experiences that were far worse than mine, as as defined by society, and so I've had a chance to. Learn early that this this thing, this pursuit, isn't about trying to hold my torch as high as possible, but to figure out a way to carry as many torches as I can for others. Um, it's only when and if I choose to look at the world's idea and definition of success that I might that I might start to think that carrying torches 
for the folks that, that never had, that never lived, that never made it to the place that I made it, is is isn't really truly mm -hmm. success. So I don't I don't live up to somebody else's ideals um, for success. I don't live up to somebody else's um, understanding of, of what it takes to to be a leader. Um, I moved enough um, by what it was I, I I lived through, what it is I get to live through, and how it is I get to remember and help um, myself overcome those those emotional those social deficits that I had when I was a child. And remember those people that were in that moment with me, or there are people that were like me um, in that moment and they never had the opportunities that I had. I don't know if that makes any sense, but mm -hmm. yeah, you know I like to I like to. I like to write. I wrote this thing for my for my kids one time. You mind if I just read it to you real quick? Yeah. It's uh, it was because my my daughter was thirteen, and you know, and she she was experiencing still experiencing in middle school, trying, but but uh, it's kind of about labeling kids, et cetera. But I, I said, you know, at six, I'm inquisitive and hesitantly daring. I'm quick to smile, would gladly walk one to chase the beauty of nature found in a mile, and easily get lost in one hundred to catch it. But that doesn't slow me. Mile by mile, it grows me just like magic. And at 10, it's the beginning and not the end. A colorful array, make-believe, and let's pretend. Imagine, Daddy, what if I ran super fast, was invisible, never last, invincible, my kingdom vast? What if I could be a kid longer than you did, chasing the wind, never would my imagination be thinned, unbound as the world spins, no expectation, bathed in adoration, silence shattered by my childish chatter. Let me begin. How is it then that I weigh far less than the world that weighs on me? Thirteen is more than I bargained for. Take your legacy from my bag. Remove the labels. Let go the tags. It's too heavy, this load I bear. Yours and mine, it's not fair. I'm not your perfect fix. I'll never survive this fabricated context. Thin is the air I breathe in an attempt to become the air you seek. This life is enough, my highs and lows. I deflect what you're projecting with every selfish blow. Loose the grip, it's too tight. My reflections become a black and white. What's this disease, your family legacy? Vibrant colors I no longer see. You recruit for a life of futility. Stop defining success for me. Daddy, what if I had no facade, was pursuing my passion perfectly flawed, growing up quite unintentionally, dressing for success unconventionally, purple hair, a pink bow tie, tennis shoes, tie-dye. Would you love me more or less if my life didn't simplify your definition of success? Reflect your idea of a perfect mess. So I wrote that for my kids. That's kind of... Um, me saying to them, look, daddy didn't experience, I get it. The world projects on you. I might project on you. We might have these ideas in mind for you of success, legacy, whatever it might be. But we can't do that to, to folks. I don't want them to think that, that they have to have this facade, that they have to attend to, to my idea of success that that I, I need them to carry on some legacy for me, but I do want them to find it as unconventional as it might come. You know, I want them to define success for themselves. And I want them to, to live a life that exemplifies just just that. Does that make sense, mm -hmm. man? No, I think that's very cool. I'd like to share that um, uh, poem. If you, if you have it on the computer, um, I can put that in the in the notes as well. But I like that. I think that it's, again, the way that I would say that is um, basically uh, uh, teaching your kids that there there's going to be a lot of things that are projected onto them. And I guess I would say also that it's not, it's not necessarily, just because someone is projecting something onto you does not necessarily mean that you should disregard it. 
but you also shouldn't necessarily just assume that because someone else says success is X, Y, or Z that you have to fit into one of those and you can't, you know, you, you should also, you know, do some searching on the inside to see if there's something that, um, a different way that you define success for yourself or something else that you should be pursuing rather than what someone else wants. Yeah, I, I would concur. This has been super, super interesting. Once again, just I, your perspective and the way that you're able to articulate things, I think, is very um, moving and impressive. Do you do you read a lot or do you watch movies? And do you have any um, top recommendations? It doesn't need to be like necessarily the best book or movie ever, but maybe something recently or in the recent past that has kind of stuck in your mind or that you would um, encourage people to take a look at? Yeah, you know, I think there's there's a lot of great stuff out there to read. And so I, I don't watch a ton of movies for the sake of watching movies. Um, I'll watch one every now and again if somebody says that was really good and it's, it's going to move you. But Kevin Carroll wrote a book called Rules of the Red Rubber Ball that I think is, is, is really awesome. Um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote uh, David and Goliath which again, I think is, is, um, is pretty awesome, you know? Um, and it's, it's books like that, that, that I really do most appreciate. Um, I think most people know, as Simon Sinek wrote, uh, um, uh, the book, um, start with why start with why. Thank you. Um, I was just going to say why, but start with why. And I think there's I think there's power in that. Um, if find the Kevin Carroll's work and and Malcolm Gladwell's work very different from I think um, Cynic's work. You start with why is more uh, I suppose business centric. However, if you take a look at at the concepts therein, I think you can really uh, apply it to to life as well. You know, so those those books I think are. Are pretty powerful um, if you allow, if you allow them to be, then those would be three books that that I would suggest. You know, off off the top. Awesome. And um, lastly, if someone wants to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best method of contact, or where can they find you? Yeah, the best way to contact me would be via email at my personal email address. B-A-Y-E-R-0494 at gmail.com. Um, and I always tell people, Chris, I'm, I'm, I'm way open. If somebody wanted to shoot me a line and, and wanted to just have, have a dialogue, you know, I don't, I don't think I, I know it all. Hopefully you, you get from this conversation that this is merely my perspective and it's, it's, it's what I believe. It's, it's not steeped in, in research. Like I can't point to tons of literature behind what it is I'm, I'm telling you, I am just speaking from, from my lived experience and, and what's, what's helped me move forward. So if anybody wants to get in touch with me, yeah, I'd, I'd be more than, more than happy to, to start a dialogue with, with folks. Awesome. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for your time and um, just being very generous and, and sharing your experiences and wisdom and all that stuff. Hey, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of The Pursuit of Purpose. As always, you can check out the show notes in the description on the podcast or visit my website, chriskiefer.net. 
to find any other relevant links or information that was discussed on the show. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people.